Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Guns on Pegs podcast. Today, once again, I have left Chris behind and come on an adventure. Uh, he's at Lords today, so don't feel too sorry for him. Uh, as you may have gathered from some of the background noise, I'm not in my house as I usually am for these recordings, but instead I've travelled east from Hampshire uh, along the south coast to Sussex. Um, and the reason I've come all this way is that our good friends at Weber have helped us to set up a podcast with a man whose work I have admired from afar for quite some time. Uh, you might have seen him on Channel 4's Shipwrecked or read his articles in The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Independent, or read his book, which shares the same name as his Instagram account, which is where I first came across him, uh, and his business, Hunter Gather Cook, also known as Nick Weston. Nick. Welcome to the podcast. George, thank you very much. Pleasure to have you down. Well, it's very, very nice to be here. This is a pretty amazing location. Um, perhaps we'll start off just by giving a quick atmosphere, uh, scene setting description of the space we're in at the minute. So currently we are sat in a 200-year-old threshing barn. Um, so basically this thing was built five years after the Battle of Waterloo. Um, so uh, you can see, if you look up there, you've got like, so basically a threshing barn has like a smaller entrance and a big outgoing entrance into the walled garden. Um, so you can see where there used to be an archway over there. Um, so when we first came here, I mean, Hunter Gather Cook's been through many phases. Um, it all started, um, thanks, thanks, we're talking about shipwreck, by the way. <laughs> That's something I, I quite I, I like to keep quiet. Um, uh, a wonderful experience, and I met a very uh, good friend of mine now, Rowan, on there, um, uh, who kind of we work together with Yeti now, so it's it's a lovely thing. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, so it started with kind of doing that, and I realised that I had a passion for like teaching people how to do things. So I was out there as a survival expert, which Channel 4 labelled me as. Um, but I kind of found, like, seeing people that had no idea how to make fire from scratch, like, catch crabs, fishing. I mean, we were making, like, fishing line out of dental floss, things like that. I was nicking girls' Kirby grips to um, make fishing hooks and sharpening it up on a, on a stone. Um, so I kind of realized, I was like, I, I quite enjoy seeing them thrive and actually become, like, good at these things. Competent and, yeah. and, and generating or learning new skills and being well, able to fend for themselves a bit. That's the thing. So when, when I came back from that, I came back to London, I'd been kind of working, like, as an event chef. I kind of got back into it and suddenly you kind of start looking at ways of getting out of doing that. So you're like, I kind of, I'm from Sussex originally or grew up on Ashdown Forest. And I was like, I, I kind of I've always done a lot of, like fly fishing is my absolute passion. Um, but shooting as well, love doing that. Like love a bit of deer stalking. So it's one of those things I was like, well, how could I maybe make this into a thing? And I just got fed up with London. It was recession driven. I was like, I can't afford to live up here. So I was like, right, I'm gonna move back to Sussex. Um, I'm going to find a bit of land 
which is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. But if you know quite a few farmers like that you've grown up with, you can be like, can I can I build a treehouse in one of your woods and live live off the land for like six months? And they try to turn around to you and go, Yeah, I'd be interested to see how that's gonna turn out. Um, so that's so that's the first that was the first iteration of the, this whole project then was just yeah, you so, living alone I mean, in in a treehouse in the woods. Very much so but I, I was kind of doing a when I was in London I was a bit like bored with work. I was doing a um uh a blog called which was called Hunt Together Cook and it was like I, I mean the way I'm quite heavily dyslexic um so I was like, I saw it as hunter, I'm the hunter, and I gather and I cook. Whereas grammatically, it should be hunter, gather a cook, or hunt, gather cook. Um, There is a very cool dude who's like my doppelganger in uh, the States called Hank Shaw, who I've been following for years, and we always kind of have a joke about it because he's hunt, gather cook, whereas I'm hunter, gather cook. Um, And there's another guy in Bristol who we won't talk about. But... um, (laughs) Uh, which weirdly people send stuff to him thinking it's me and it's like uh, can you send it back to me he's like no but um, uh, so through doing that kind of you know you you, you live in a treehouse for six months and, and weirdly wrote a book about it called The Treehouse Diaries if you can if you can find one of them it's like gold dust oh they're rare books now are they very rare books <laughs> I mean, they only did like 6,000 copies um, and I've never seen a royalty from it. So I don't think I ever will. Um, uh, but, um, but from doing that, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start this thing. And I just called it after the, the blog like, that I was doing. And I just called it Hunter Gather Cook. And, um, and then from there, found a piece of land that we were kind of renting, like not about half an hour from where we are now. Um, and had a very simple kind of lean-to sort of set up, and we kind of started doing, like, teaching people how to do, like, kind of deer butchery, um, rabbit butchery. And previously, I'd never really been into deer butchery, but then you meet a lot of people, and you then learn from them, and then you devise your own way about how to take things apart. Yeah, so maybe you can just expand a little bit on... um the, t- the different strands of the business. So you run courses for people, for members of the public and corporate groups and that kind of stuff. And then you also kind of go on the road a bit, don't you? Yeah, so we kind of, it's diversified a lot. I mean, we did from the start, when you start something like this, you kind of spread yourself as wide as you can. And you do like, oh, we'll, we'll do like kids' bushcrafty days and stuff like that. Fairly quickly, I mean, we've... I have a seven-year-old, fairly quickly you realise actually you don't want to work with children. Um, <laughs> yes. And, or, or, or animals. <laughs> um, but, um, but I was like, I was like, actually, no, let's refine it a bit more. And, and the kind of, you start bringing in kind of chefs and stuff like that. And, and you go, okay, well, let's make this into a thing. I can do, I mean, all the guys here know that I'm mainly logistics. So I put everything together they helped me execute all of that. So gradually over the years, it changed from being kind of like, okay, we're just going to do like courses pretty much every weekend throughout the year. Then 
you kind of start doing festivals. So Wilderness Festival is one we've been doing for like, I think this is our 10th year doing it. Um, so we do like crayfish trapping, uh, deer butchery and foraging. And then we do like um, also like a kind of after they've done their two hour course, they come back to our woodland kitchen, which we build over the space of a week. And then they do, um, uh, they have canapes, wild cocktails, all the rest of it. Um, and that's was brilliant working with the botanist dudes. I, I think a, a quick a quick cheers. Well, I was going to say, so a, a regular feature of our podcast is the segment that we call What's That You're Drinking? Normally we'd go around the group and we'd each talk about what we're drinking, but since you made the drinks, maybe you could just tell us what's in the glass. Um, uh, so we've got a bit of Moroccan mint from the garden, a bit of lime, um, some of the lovely botanist gin, uh, and a bit of fever tree. I mean, got to keep you guys refreshed. Tell me a little bit about botanist gin. Um, so it's made from 22 different botanicals uh, up on uh, the lovely island of Isla. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. Like, lot, um, Isla's well known for its whiskey. Yes. Um, so, you know, you've got your Lagavulins, you've got, you got your Ardbeg. Well, it's a bit of a running gag on the podcast that nine times out of ten I'm drinking whiskey on the podcast. So it's nice to have a, a little change, oh, but I'm very familiar with those Isla whiskeys. There is a bottle of Brook Laddie over there. <laughs> well, I have got to drive back to Winchester <laughs> later, so I probably <laughs> take it a little bit easy. But um, it's a very nice gin and tonic, a really, that, and the mint's a really lovely touch in it, I think. That's why I made you a G&T rather than just like, here's a dram. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have complained. Um, but see, it's like, um, so you, uh, over the years, and it's been a bizarre thing that you just, I've never had with what we do at Hunter Gather Cook, like a plan with it. I mean, I've had a kind of plan, but I think my dyslexic brain doesn't really compute a five-year plan. So it's kind of, it just evolves and you see what happens and comes along. And you've tried all these different things and some things worked and some things have worked, but you don't want to keep doing them. And well, but that's, that's the thing. And it's like, and you moving into like doing corporate stuff, like we have like quite a lot of companies come down here. Like we've got a job for Jägermeister coming up who've been down before. We've got, um, uh, I mean, obviously the botanist, they come down, we do academies for them, so we teach about wild cocktails and botanicals. Um, but even kind of random stuff, like, uh, like, like Yeti, working with them and becoming an ambassador for them, yeah. I never even thought about it. Even working like, with Weber, I never thought, like when I was sat in my treehouse going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like, I kind of know what I want to do, but how... How do you make that gonna, happen? Yeah, what's going to happen? Yeah. So you basically, it's like jumping off a cliff and hoping for a soft landing. And you just go, you know what? If I do something to the best of my ability and, you know, find the right people to execute it, then it might work out. <laughs> so so the, I guess there's... Um, two main strands to what you do in terms of the actual um what's the word for it the actual uh concept um one of those is wild food and the other is cooking with fire barbecue if you want to call it that and i suppose game which is obviously where the guns on pegs angle comes in but 
we've talked about it a little bit before um, on the podcast and um, in various articles that we've put out. There is something inherently perfect about that combination of game and wild food. Um, maybe you could just talk. So I mean, what I'm really interested to know is, did the cooking with fire lead to cooking with game or did cooking with game lead to cooking on fire? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I mean, the way that I've always thought about it is there's this like wonderful circle that exists in nature. So if you're going to be shooting game, like be rabbits, deer, they all live in like the great outdoors. Yeah. You know, you, this is wild food we're talking about. They also eat lots of, um, you know, all the plants that are around them. So you've suddenly got this kind of like, okay, well, my food is eating my other food. And then they live in the woods or around the woods. And you're like, okay, well, then you cook on them. Well, you cook. So it's almost a sort of a terroir thing to use. A, Very much so. It's about localism as much as it is about that. Yeah. And we, we've also been like throughout the years, it's got, it's got better and better like as how of where we saw stuff so for example the treehouse site we had um we would always use like what wood was grown there and we'd get it from the farm so we'd be getting uh hornbeam uh oak uh and a bit of silver birch like that's our kind of cooking style yeah. that's what we'd be using for our to fuel our fires whereas here we're in the south downs so Oi, Cleo, no. Shut. So speaking of uh, local food, that is one of your truffle hounds you were telling me earlier. Yeah, so we got two of them. I'm surprised the other one's not kicked off. Um, but yeah, um, two Norfolk slash uh, Jack Russell Terriers, uh, which are from Furl, which is the estate we're on. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, this one's a bit of a wally. Um, whereas, no, she's only one, whereas B's like nine, she's like seasoned truffle hound. So, but that's another thing I never thought I'd get into. But when you find out that on the South Downs there are truffles, yeah. you're suddenly like, okay, I'm going to get a dog. I've never had dogs before. Train it and then see and what so happens. I've read a bit about training truffle hounds before. I'm intrigued to know how you went about it. Because I've heard one technique and I've never quite believed it. So you tell me what you did and then I'll tell you if it's the same one that I've heard. So, I mean, I looked at quite... I was very fortunate that I did a piece for The Independent, I think it was, and when I first heard it, I had to do a foraging article for them. And I heard in the local pub, which is always the best place yeah. for information, yeah. um, that you do get truffles in Sussex. So I was like, okay. Um, so I kind of started looking into it, and this name popped up online, uh, it's lovely woman called Melissa Waddingham and I was like I got in touch with her and I said look I've got to do this I'd love to learn about this this is kind of what I do I do kind of foraging and stuff like that would you be up for it and she was like yeah cool so she took me out and with her dogs who like she's trained and um and she was quite helpful when it came to actually training my dogs although I kind of it's very simple with dogs and training them to do stuff, I think. Like, I mean, gun dogs, probably a lot more 
um, I mean, I, I tend to, with these two, is keeping them away from sheep and not harassing them and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but, um, but it was literally a cotton wool pad, bit of truffle oil on it, hide it round flaps of carpet in the house, and, um, and then go, go on, look for it, look for it, look for it. And then when they find it, you go, well, well done, give them a treat. Right, go on, look for it, working, working. And those are the two cool signs for these two. Like I reckon if, if B, I don't know where B is, but if, if she came in here and I gave her a stiff truffle oil and went working, she'd start walking around the bar and go, Amazing. So, so that's not quite the technique that I'd heard of, which is I. So I read. What did you do? Well, I haven't. I haven't got a truffle hand, but I read that the uh, the way that some people do it is to paint truffle oil onto the mother's teats yes. when they're a puppy, and then the puppy obviously associates that smell with, I guess, reward. So it's exactly the same. It's the same concept, but a different mm. sort of technique. That is the other one. But there, there is um, one of the guys who works me. Um, Dave, who's been with us from the beginning, he um, sadly his his dog Floyd passed away. Um, who was a lovely, lovely border terrier. But he taught his dog to do truffling. He basically put truffle on a tennis ball and would like go fetch. And um, his dog became like insanely good at finding tennis balls anywhere, but not truffle. No. <laughs> Not truffles, but tennis balls everywhere. Um, but uh, but that's the thing that there's kind of a lot of. I think it's really just like, if you get them as a puppy and you ingrain that thing into them, they're never going to forget that. Yeah, I think um, so. Uh, we recently found we my family farms on on the South Downs as well, just outside Winchester, um, and uh, somebody recently turned up with an Italian truffle hound and found truffles in one of our woods. So um, my parents have got Dachshunds and um, they need to get to work, basically, is my can, strong you, feeling yeah. about it. I was saying that, oh, well, like, you, typically your truffle hounds are your Legatos, Labradors or Spaniels. I mean, Terriers, not so much. Yeah. But, um, but no, Bee's Bee's had quite a bit of, um, bit of air time. She's been on... Um, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast doing truffling. Um, uh, I think she's been on a couple of BBC reports. Um, and Made in Chelsea, which we don't tend to talk about because it's a bit embarrassing. But she doesn't know. <laughs> but, but going back to this kind of, um, you know, the, the synergy between game and, and cooking on flame and, and that kind of thing, I mean... Compared to some of the you know highfalutin techniques that you some, that you hear about chefs using in kitchens these days, it's probably fair to call some of the techniques that you use um, maybe primitive cooking techniques. But I think you've actually got like an academic background in that kind of thing as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I I studied archaeology at Newcastle University, and I I, I realised after my first year of doing it, I was like, I'm never gonna go into archaeology from a professional point of view because you either you're either a ditch monkey so you're just you're digging stuff up and but you either if to progress and go further you have to do like a master's and I was like I don't want to spend another I don't want to be a mature student yeah. doing stuff I was just like no it's not it's not really for me um 
but the thing is, I specialised in like Mesolithic um, hunter-gatherer hunter societies, so that was kind of something, and I had a real privilege to work on the oldest um, house they ever found in Britain, which was like 8,500 years old. Wow, so where's that? Uh, so I was up in a place called Craster, so right on the coast, like up in Northumbria. Right. Um, so we kind of, uh, you know, you, you had like the original hearth, you had post holes, and the amount of like, you had like shell middens from behind, so shell middens where like they'll eat an oyster and then yeah. just chuck it over their shoulder. So you get that kind of build up of stuff, but also loads of flint tools. And the thing is, being a like 20 year old surfer dude, it was great because every time we finished, like kind of for lunch, I there was a brilliant surf break out the front, so I just got out my surfboard. I kept it in the the tent there, um, so that was quite a nice little thing. But I was just like, I was like these flint tools. And I pulled out some like I mean, a Mesolithic tool kit is an amazing thing like all the different blades, stuff like that they had. And I was just like, I'd, I'd dig up a really good one. And I'd be like, put that in my pocket because <laughs> it's quite nice. And I still got them. I think they're in, they're up on the shelf up there. Well, so, I mean, I, I saw an episode of uh, Meat Eater on YouTube a little while ago where they were using um, stone tools to butcher a buffalo. Um, and it's amazing how effective and sharp those flint tools are. And, you know, they Ooh. said, uh, the, you know, they get blunt very quickly and you then have to spend 20 minutes putting a new edge on. Nap out a new one. Yeah. But, but like to actually, you know, they were amazed, you know, they had these guys who are used to skinning and butchering big animals. And they said, well, the only real difference is that they're not as comfortable to hold. Yeah. Uh, and you have to sharpen them more often, but otherwise they are every bit as effective as the the knives that we use today. But that's the thing. They're, I mean, they're, they're kind of, I think, flat, freshly napped flint is more sharp than surgical seal, uh, yeah. steel. Um, so it's quite, it's like one of those things that actually, if you just smash out a new one, off you go. Yeah. But I, mean, I knew that all these flint tools were going to go in a bag into a box and be forgotten about. And I was like... No, I want to keep some of that for me. So at that point, you were already interested in that kind of primitive way of doing things, that, uh, that very kind of ancient way of doing things. And um, were you also looking at, you know, the, the cooking processes and techniques that they might have been using? Can you infer anything from an ancient hearth about how people might have been cooking? Or Well, that's the thing, you, you kind of start studying a lot of different or looking into when I realized that I was like actually I'm going down this route of cooking hunting shooting foraging you start looking into a lot of different things and I mean I I kind of learned so we did at the beginning I mean the first deer we ever butchered we did with a friend of mine's like from uni his brother was getting married and he was like do you do stag groups I was like and I only just started hunting gather cook, and I was like, "Well, we could do." And we took apart a roe deer just with flint tools. So they had to nap out the flint wow. tools first, and then did it. It was an absolute shit show. <laughs> I was just like, "Oh my god!" Fifteen and drunk guys trying not to yeah, slice their arteries open. They drunk a bit of cider. I was just like, oh, "At least they're not using knives." Um, <laughs> Which, but, but that was the thing. So from there, you start kind of looking into a lot of different bits and pieces and fire cookery techniques. And I mean, I, I think 
uh, we we used to do, we still do them, but uh, underground ovens or umus, hangies, they're known as a lot of different names um, around the world. So that's like a pit oven where you dig a big hole and then yeah. cover it over. Yeah, so you basically dig a big hole. You want to use kind of igneous rocks, so granite, basalt, um, uh, build a big fire, put the rocks on, um, let the, the weight of the rocks kind of sink your fire down, and then basically you flick um, water over it, um, and if the water instantly evaporates, that's when you like, okay, right, heat point. Then put your meat on, wrapped usually in palm leaves, where I learned how to do it. Good story, actually, about how I, I basically, me and my friend who were traveling when we were like 18, uh, went to Fiji, spent right. like a month there, did not surfing and just not a lot else. Uh, we actually, I, I met a guy on uh, one of the islands we we're staying on and he was like, oh, I'm on holiday. He was like, Fijian dude. And he was like, he was like, um, he was like yeah, do you, you want to come stay in my village? Oh, wow. And I was like, we're like, you know when you're a bit... Uncertain. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but yeah, well, he, he was a nice guy and what's he called? Tomelli. I still remember his name. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, cool, let's do it. And um, um, so we went and hung out with them up there and they said to us one night, they were like, oh, do you want us to do like an imu? And I was like, well, what's that? And he was like, well, we got... And they have like pigs, chickens, everything running around. And we were kind of quite far up in the highlands of Fiji and, and he was like um he was like oh yeah we'll, we'll basically kill a pig and we'll show you how to do it and um it was amazing to kind of learn that technique because I was like I've never seen that before so obviously oh, you collect these different fire experiences and especially kind of what you see now it's like if you're in the countryside you can do anything like, you can really kind of... If you've got go, the space. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you're in central London, you're cooking over fire, it's not the same thing. But I do feel like there is, you know, it definitely it felt for a long time like, you know, um, restaurant cooking was very focused on, you know, um, sous-viding things and making foams and purees and that kind of thing. But I feel like maybe, and I'm sure it's all cyclical, that there is a bit more interest in cooking with naked flame and that kind of thing you see more restaurants that have got like a charcoal grill in the kitchen and that kind of thing so do you think that um is, um, is my is my instinct on that right that people are there is a sort of increased interest in some of these techniques compared to say 10 years ago i, th I think so i mean fire cookery has become huge like over the year like the last uh, over the last 10 years it's just kind of Whereas when we, and we started, like, well, I think we're almost in, what, 2011 we started. So, but if you're going to build a kitchen in the middle of the woods, you're like, what's my option? Cooking over fire. And I've always loved cooking over fire. Um, so it, it's a gradual kind of process of going, okay, well, how can you make it better? And that, like, I always thought, you know, if, if you put a sausage on the grill and it rolls off into the fire, you're like, that's gone. Actually, that sausage will probably taste better than the ones on the grill because you're getting that direct contact, which is what we refer to as dirty cooking, which is, and I remember when I first kind of came across that, I was like, that's actually really good. And, th and then you start using like sieves to cook vegetables over, like over coals, things like that. 
slapping stuff straight on and and you start to kind of really play around with ideas and and you kind of get stuff from everyone I mean, i'm not going to do what's that there's a crazy vietnamese guy who basically just has like a he kind of cooks out like with a blowtorch and then dips his hands in cold water and turns everything over crikey um, i was just like you're like okay that's quite extreme. yeah that's a bit <laughs> a bit <laughs> full on um uh, but I'm saying it's kind of, I think with fire cookery, there is no end to it. You never stop learning. There's always a new technique. There's always a new thing to try, a new, you know, a new ingredient or whatever. And you're just trying well, new it. things. But then you've also got like, I mean, we're very lucky that we have a lot of tools to play. Why hasn't Dan said it? He's meant to be. Well, on, okay. Let's bring right, Dan. So, well. So the reason we I've come all this way um, is because we're not just here to talk about cooking with fire. We're going to do some. So to that end, uh, Weber have kindly provided us with a bit of kit to use. Um, and with us, we have somebody whose voice is going to be familiar to people who've listened to previous series of the Guns on Pegs podcast. Uh, and that voice is Dan Cooper, uh, head grill master at Weber. So welcome, Dan. It's good to actually record with you in person rather than that's down quite, the internet. That's quite a title. <laughs> Thanks for having me, George. Yeah, and <laughs> great to be here, Nick. And just say, obviously, being like a followed, you know, for about you know many years now, what you've been up to, and I'm really excited to come and come and see this place in person and have a chat. It's great. So thank you. So what bit of kit have you brought down? Okay, well, we're going to start. I think just really where the whole Weber story started so with a, a lovely 57 centimeter meter kettle barbecue so i suppose for people that don't know what a kettle barbecue is but it's the classic sort of sphere you've got a lid and a bowl and a sort of tripod leg setup and it's where weber as a company really started that was the first product back in 1952 a chap called George Stephen, who was working for an engineering company called weber brothers in in chicago he took one home um um uh well he was working for the for the company and they were making these uh metal yachting boys or buoys as they call yeah. them in, in america oh okay so yeah. that hence the well exactly so that's what they were making and he took one home thinking he was going to make a, a barbecue out of it and this thing really captured people's imagination because he was using air vents on the lid and, and at the bottom and able to control the oxygen whereas before He'd been cooking on a big open sort of half oil drum style grill. And um and this thing really kind of captured people's imaginations, um, really to the point where he was had a little sideline making them, and then eventually he managed to raise the funds to buy Weber Brothers Engineering and he turned the production from spherical shipping boys to barbecues. I, I mean, did not know that. No, nor did I. That's such a cool story. That is, that is fact of the day. Yeah, I love that. Um, and um, so obviously we've spoken before on the podcast about some of the more high tech bits of kit that Weber do. We've spoken about the smoke fire, for example, and um, I've got one of your excellent um, gas travel barbecues, the traveler. They're great. But we're kind of really going. I mean, we're not going quite back to some of the primitive techniques that we've been talking about before. But as far as Weber barbecues go, this is as sort of... Um, grassroots as it gets then in that case yeah absolutely and it's a great as I always say you know no matter what what your kind of aspirations are in terms of 
acquiring a big fancy barbecue it's always good to learn that fire control in a in a kettle because it's just it's so well thought out and it you know it's it's tried the design's hardly changed and all the great barbecue chefs that i've had the privilege of talking to you know so many of them say you know the weber kettle is just the 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 best starting point and that's the difference between you know your standard tray of coals with a grill over the top and a weber kettle well there's two things right one is the fact that it has a lid altogether and the other is the ability to control the temperature through and and the, the speed at which the fire burns through the the vents and that kind Absolutely. of thing that's what makes a difference yeah exactly so that the you know using the grill in its entirety the lid is really part of it um so you know lid on cooking will help um re- reduce the oxygen flow so stop those flare-ups from happening keep all the flavor in the cook box so you're getting better taste and also it helps to cook your food through economically so you're using it as an oven and a grill it's it's knowing you know indirect direct all that and so i think that a lot of people listening you know i think there is a, a connection as we discussed between the desire to go out and and source your own protein um through hunting and fishing and shooting and also the desire to cook that in as um in as uh, naturalistic i guess way of, as possible but i also think and i speak from painful person experience it is quite easy to get wrong when it comes to cooking game particularly on a barbecue um so given that i've got two genuine experts with me um <laughs> I, 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 maybe dan <laughs> what are the big mistakes that people make um go on you go first and then dan you can jump in i think when it comes to game you've always got to worry about fat content and that is the endless battle with it um i mean i like to do like Personally, for myself, like just like venison, like raw, like a tartar or something like that, or doing tataki, like a Japanese style of it, um, is a wonderful way of really appreciating it. And you don't have to worry about the cooking element. But then when it comes to like pheasant, um, partridge, anything like that, partridge, I think is a lot, I find it's a lot easier to work with because it's it's not as gamey as pheasant um and you can and it's quite a small like morsel of something so you can really kind of get the most out of it with pheasant you might get i mean we we had a a guy who works here guy called lee wonderful dorset chap um when you get kind of when you take apart pheasant like if either if you're skinning it out or whatever you get that kind of orange fat on them. Yeah. So a, ye- so a yellow fat on them, um, which he referred to as, and on courses with people, like 25 people here, and he's like, he's like, oh, so this thing here, like this, you can see this yellow stuff, this is pheasant fat. We call it bum custard. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, Lee, come on. Like. <laughs> yeah, it's not great tasting, is it, that? Um, but no, but, but that's the thing. That's the only fat content you're getting from that animal. Yes. And especially when we're dealing with like fallow deer, stuff like that, any kind of fat content you can get, whether it's from um, like the suet from around the kidneys, just take it all. Like, and that's, that's why like autumn is 
a really good time when you start getting that build up of fat on the deer the you're like right this is we can we can use this so uh, so a lot of people listening are going to have a deep freeze that is to a certain extent full of last season's pheasant partridge that kind of thing um so maybe dan you could give us uh so a whole pheasant what are the What's the technique to make sure that comes out as good as possible if you're cooking it on the barbecue? Because everybody needs to empty their freezer before the shooting season starts again. Um, so, so what would you be doing if I presented you with a with a, a whole pheasant from last season? It's been in the freezer for a few months, so it might not be in the best possible condition. But what what what, what would you be doing? Well, I think um, cooking a whole pheasant is tricky, obviously, because the legs and the breast cook at slightly different rates. So sometimes I would sort of you know, separate them and deal with the breast meat differently to the leg meat. But if you're cooking it whole, I think, you know, the temptation is to, especially with a barbecue, is add as much, and um, you know, as much fuel to get really high searing temperatures. But I think you need to just calm it down a little bit, not not too much heat. Um, and like Nick said, like lots of fat. I I mean, it's really tricky to um, to pluck a whole pheasant really neatly with all with all the yeah. skin intact like roasting a chicken so i often sometimes cook my pheasant sort of the uh, the reverse breast way side so breast down. side down loads of butter and sort of sage inside and cook it a bit more gently um if you're doing it whole but but i do really like to do a kind of a kind of confit on the legs cook them with a lot of fat almost you know, but again, so maybe take the legs off take and the leave legs the breast off. on the ground. Exactly. So generally speaking, I'd cook the legs really slowly in a kind of Dutch oven with lots of lots of duck fat, um, but you know, at a, at a lower lower temperature, and then just a, a, a real sear on the breast meat, almost leaving a little bit of blush in the middle. Oh right, okay, yeah, um, nice. So that just keeps it a bit juicy. But that's that's the thing. Ducks are the only ones that give us fat in the game world. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> I mean, like we buy like tubs of fat from what they they called mr duck get off amazon (laughs) but um yeah keep mopping and basting and and keep that meat kind of and what about brining would you brine a pheasant or yeah i think i think brining is is a wonderful way of bringing flavor and helping you to maximize on moisture content on your sort of finished product so definitely brining and that's in a whether you're doing dry or wet brining definitely longer the better very nice right well all this talking about food has got me hungry um what are we going to cook today nick what are we going to do so um it's good story behind this uh which i think i told you about earlier on um, yeah but so it'll bear repeating i think we're, we're gonna do what we call land sea air which was something um again my good friend dave who works at hunter gather cook um, he was like, he was like, oh, have you have you done this McDonald's hack before? And I was like, what is it? I was like, I've never heard of McDonald's hacks. And he was like, well, basically, you get a fillet of fish burger, and then you get um, uh, chicken mayo, and then you get a cheeseburger, and you put them all together and eat it. Land, wow. Sea, okay, so air. it's like a so that's like a, a fast food surf and turf. Exactly. <laughs> so I kind of like. Well, I first, I mean, most people do like a bit of McDonald's. I don't mind a Macca's. It's like when you get people that are vehemently like, no, why why are you hunter-gather cook eating 
I did see actually after, actually when I first met you, we were on our way back from River Cottage after doing a demo and me and one of my guys, both wearing Hunter Gather Cook branded t-shirts, went into McDonald's and like, and we were like ordering stuff and this guy came and tapped me on the shoulder and he was just like, all right. So I follow you on Instagram, just seen you at River Cottage. What are you doing here? I was like, <laughs> I just looked at him and I just went, same thing as you. And he kind of, I, I, I <laughs> did a, shrank back. But I did a post <laughs> of like being at River Cottage and I was like, wonderful weekend and it was great fun. And he commented on the post just saying, great to meet you under the arches. <laughs> so, so this idea of going, okay, well, how can we combine like, I mean, I was like, I want to put this land, sea, air thing together. And you could do it like venison um, and then you've got, I mean, I think fish and meat together as a thing, maybe not so much. So we kind of was like working on it and we we're like, okay, well, well, we could do like a, a back haunch cut of venison and then we could use a sheet of nori, there's the sea, and then um, the air would be like pheasant or pigeon. And all of these things work. So for people who don't know, nori is the, the so sort of seaweed yeah, sheets like that seaweed you sheets. use in sushi and that kind of thing. But it, it's taken like development. This is literally a dish that we've only been playing with for, I'd say, the last three weeks. Oh, wow. So it's a, oh, yeah, it's a, a new, new thing. And we changed it up. Like So when we were at Black Deer Festival the other week, we did it with venison, pheasant, um, and then we did the nori sheets, but we did them like on the inside um, okay. rather than on the outside. But you wrap the whole thing in pancetta, right. so, which is what we're doing today. So literally at the weekend, the guys were like, because we, we always sit down and have like a morning briefing and go, okay, these are the dishes we're doing. What do you want to do? What's fresh in the garden? What are we going to use with them? We order in a certain amount of other things, but it's like, okay, well, how do we do it? And one of the guys turned around, like one of the, obviously clearly a sh chefy chef, um, Chops, my right-hand man, was like, um, he was like, well, no, put, put the pancetta down, then put the nori down, then put everything else in. Like, and I was like, uh, that makes more sense. From a structural um, perspective, I guess, ex as much as exactly. anything else, yeah. But also from how it looks. Like so, what's the, so what version have we got today then? So essentially what we're doing is we're going to be laying down uh, pan, pancetta first, nori, then we're going to flatten out some pheasant breasts, and then we're going to put inside of that, we're going to put the rabbit breasts, uh, we're going to put some... Oh, rabbit? Yeah. I didn't catch that before. Oh, that's cool. Very nice. Lancy, yeah. Yes. Uh, then we're going to uh, put down, because uh, ra rabbit, like the rabbit's best friends, sage and mustard. Um, so we're going to put a little bit of that in there, and I'm going to roll the whole thing up, um, and then, but the thing is, you don't need to do much seasoning with it because you got your pancetta, which is salty, your nori, nice and salty, quite umami. So put those things all together, and, and we're going to basically cook it like a tornado on the on the grill. So again, I'm going to ask you to explain what a tornado is. It's basically it's it's like a meaty beef Wellington without the pastry. So it's 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 sort Long of it's sort of rolled up, kind of like maybe like a burrito, but without the without the tortilla wrap outside it. So it's it's a sort of it's like a big sausage. 
exactly that. Um, uh, so I think my, my globe artichoke might be running out of water. <laughs> which I, so I cut it out. Dan, do you mind going and checking on it? <laughs> this is live cooking, people. <laughs> <laughs> I just suddenly heard a... Well, um, I mean, I think... But that, that, that's the thing. So it's basically a cylindrical thing. We'll, we'll grill it off and then we'll basically slice it into kind of nice little rounds and then um, and then we'll, we'll just uh, serve that up with some lovely bits. I think we'll do maybe some potatoes with it. Uh, we've got, well... Dan's sorting out the globe artichoke at the moment. Uh, that's more of a snacky thing. Um, uh, and then kind of whatever veg is good in the garden. Well, so I was going to say, the thing that we've not talked about is the, the pretty extensive garden you've got out the back of the barn here as well. So what, have you, what are you growing in there? Is it all um, herbs and whatnot? For, or have you got other ingredients in the so veg we, and stuff? We do. We've got... Um, uh, we've just started working with some new guys who... Um, called shrub provisions which are based kind of like in brighton right. and they basically they're brilliant they go around and check out all these different farms and they basically collate everything and um so we get well we're, we're about to start working with them and hopefully but they only deliver on tuesdays and fridays it's like no <laughs> like not just instantly. Yeah. Um, but you do kind of go through suppliers and you find the best ones that work for you. Otherwise, we do kind of... Um, like, with the garden, we don't grow things like potatoes, although the pink fur apples we put in... And we're always trying stuff with the beds. So, I mean, we're not professional gardeners. Like, I've always enjoyed it. Um, and when I was... I remember when I was living in London and we had, like, a window box thing we did and we kind of grew stuff but I mean that. we've been out there I mean it's looking in pretty good shape the garden for someone who says he's not a professional it looks pretty good out there it looks pretty quite, verdant well we're quite lazy gardeners because the thing is that we found over the years is we try things and we go okay that does well like beetroot always banging does really well um, courgettes always do really well very quite simple things to grow the herb bed so they're all kind of numbered so one to five so bed number one is herbs so we've got like our lemon verbena in there we've got rosemary sage uh curry plant which we haven't figured out what to do with yet um uh wormwood which we kind of use in cocktails which is the primary ingredient in um absinthe yeah. um uh, no green fairies yet though no <laughs> yeah um and then uh bed number two is kind of we we change them over each year. So this year, um, I think that's kind of courgettes, uh, salads, um, spinach. Then bed number three, I'm not allowed to touch. That's my wife's cutting bed. So she does all the flower arranging here and she kind of downplays herself, but she's actually really good at it. And she's kind of picked out like different things she wants to put in. And But if I go near that, she always gives me shit because... I put some mint in there at the very beginning, like four years ago, and it's just like never put mint. Never into put it anywhere. Flower. No, yeah. it'll take over. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then four and five, we kind of switch up. Like five is like the winter bed, so that's got a lot of kale and stuff in like that. Um, so that kind of comes into play late later in the year. Um, and I think four's got beans and a lot of mint in it, and some beetroot and artichokes. 
Interesting. So uh, thinking about veg then quickly, Dan, I, uh, this is something that we've talked about before over the phone, but um, I think a lot of people, when you think of barbecuing, they tend to think protein. They tend to think sausages, burgers, steaks, that kind of thing. But actually, and and maybe that, you know, if they're feeling adventurous, they might put a corn on the cob on the barbecue. But there's so much other stuff that you can do oh, with vegetables on the barbecue as yeah, well. Yeah, and I, I always try and tell people, you know, I see people sort of um, when they're cooking vegetables, even on the barbecue, kind of painstakingly chopping loads of little pieces. And I actually like keeping vegetables almost whole when I grill them. So if you've got courgettes, just split them down the middle. If you're cooking onions, just simply skin it, put it on the grill. Um, if you're cooking um, peppers, you know, do it all whole and you can you can chop it up later. But that's where you get like the flavor and the lovely sweetness and the smokiness. Um, and I'm sure Nick's got a whole load of amazing recipes you do. But but that's the thing, though, keeping them whole, yeah. you're protecting the vegetable yeah. from incineration. Exactly. So it's not like if you're kind of, you know, cooking some little uh, sort of rounds of carrot, you know, yeah. <laughs> you don't put that on the barbecue, it's yeah. not going to work. But if you put whole carrots on the barbecue and get some lovely color on the outside, they will sort of steam themselves on the inside. Then you slice them up and drench them in butter and salt and chopped herbs. That's when the happiness starts. And I like to do sort of tender stem broccoli, just a bit of olive oil and salt before it goes on. You get this lovely kind of crackling noise as the, I don't know what's going on. It must be uh, water evaporating or something. And just that lovely char on it. And it goes incredibly sweet and a little bit peppery. It's lovely. What's your favourite thing you've ever cooked on a barbecue, Dan? Come on. Oh, I mean, that's a tricky question. There's so many different... I mean, I love... I think I'd probably go to something like a really big flatfish, like a turbot or a big brill just cooked over um, charcoal. Um, yeah, or I'm a sucker for a steak. I do love a big, lovely, dry-aged, you know... Um, lovely marbled Cote de Boeuf or something. So one of those two would certainly put a big smile on my face. I wanted to ask you, Nick, what your favourite technique is of all the different styles of cooking with fire. Have you got a favourite one? Really hard one. I mean, but I think my favourite thing, it kind of, it goes back to me being a kid first cooking over fire is literally just having like just cutting out a square of turf or clearing an area, just making a little fire on the ground and then just cooking a sausage over it or on a stick. Like that. I've been doing that with my kids this summer. What's it? Just a, a bit of hazel with the point cut on the end and mm. stick a sausage on it and But just like being really, really simple with with it. I mean I've played around with like all sorts of weird stuff like done like I've put I put two grills like kind of wired them together and done it upright. And then we've got this wonderful thing. So that's kind of like an asado here. style is to, is to do it like that, right? Oh, you're going you're gonna to like this sound. So I'm just going to get it out for you. So I, I did this like as a wall of fire. Now, I've been looking for... What is that? For a long time. And you only have to look inside of it just to see how awesome it is. And I'm a bit of an antique collector of random fire stuff but it's a clockwork spit so you wind it oh up. so it's a wind up spit so what how old is that that looks like what victorian i'm not sure but i mean the noise alone oh that's great but the best thing is 
Like when it's so you wind it up. Like you probably want to you probably want to hear that sound. So you wind it up, and then when it's finished unwinding, you then it a little bell down here goes off. Starts pinging on that. That's so cool. Done. So you you put two uh, spits, one here, one there, um, and then they just basically gradually turn. Um, and we use this in the cookbook, um, and it's just like it's meant to. It's designed to go in front of like a wood burner or an open fire. Uh, and there's quite a, there's a sort of I'm, a I'm very just put it outside. It's quite loud. <laughs> There's a really nice kind of Heath Robinson element to quite a lot of this, though, which I which I love. So that that's a great bit of kit, the, the rotisserie. But I remember one of the first Instagram posts of yours that I ever saw was your water-driven rotisserie. Is that something that you just thought that could work, or had you seen it somewhere before? Like, how did you go? Like, because I can imagine if I tried to do it, I'd start full of confidence, and then I'd put the whole thing together put the paddles in the water and nothing would happen. Okay. So how much experimentation had to go on before that worked? Not that much, because you've, you've only got like, I think that is one of the things I really enjoy about fire cookery is there's no end to what you can do. I mean, obviously you've got your kind of standardized stuff that is solid, like, your Weber kettles, your big green eggs, all these different things, your gosneys. Um, but I think playing around with like actually doing it like as nature intended and how we used to do it for thousands of years mm. is a really kind of fun thing to play with. And I think the water wheel thing, I think I did see like years ago, saw a... Um, uh, I think I saw it on YouTube and it was just like someone doing it with a chicken in like South America. And they built a really simple thing with like Coke cans as a paddle wheels. Yeah. And I was just like, I was like, oh, I wonder if you could do a whole deer like that if you just made it bigger. And so I kind of was like, okay, well, let's just do this for fun. So I spoke to a load of the guys, Hunter Gather Cook, and I was like, I was like, let's go and have a weekend and do this. Like, be fun. Like, I'll make it, and then we'll see if it works. Um, and then my good friend, Christian, also known as DJ Barbecue, was like, I, I was like, dude, do you want to come down and do this? And he was like, he's like, oh. He was doing, like, a load of Jamie Oliver's food tube uh, videos at the time, and he was like, oh, can we come and film it? And I was just like, yeah. And to this day, that video has got, like, so like one and a half million views. I was like, God damn it! <laughs> Why it's on, your, it my it's on video? your YouTube channel, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> Don't really do YouTube stuff, but um, but to this day, it's like his most popular video, and it, it was like it was a real kind of like, hey, I, this probably could work because you got to, the amount of factors you got to like with the speed of the water it. and speed of water, the size like of the paddle, the depth of the river and whether it's silty or whether it's thin. So it's like suddenly you're not thinking just about the fire. You're suddenly thinking about all the other elements and, you know, wind direction and yeah. all that. So and that's what cooking with fire is about. It's more, it's not like you're, you're kind of turning on a stove 
uh, or turning on gas or something like that, you've got to think about so many different factors that are going to come into play. And I think that's what makes it quite exciting. I, I couldn't agree more. And my so uh, last winter, I cooked uh, Dan's venison chili recipe in my uh, in my new uh, cast iron cook pot over a tripod. And I I I'd put into YouTube, you know, how to make a tripod. And for the next two months, my entire YouTube suggestions feed was just mad sort of bushcraft video skills. And, and there's so many different techniques out there that I'm desperate to have a go at. But I'm starving. I don't know about you guys. I think we should crack on and do some cooking. What do you think? Yeah, let's go. Sounds let's good. go make some food. Right. Got to do a bit of prep. But let's do it. We'll do it. Dan, you want potatoes. Okay. <laughs> Peeling juicy. <laughs> Love it. Hasselbacks. Oh, okay. We're doing Hasselbacks. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay, great. I'm excited. Okay, so we've moved over into the kitchen area, and Dan is on potato duty. So, Dan, just quickly, we're doing Hasselback potatoes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hasselbacks are great, because if anyone listening isn't quite sure what they are, essentially you take a potato and cut very fine slices, but not all the way through. So when they cook, they slightly fan out and um, take in all the lovely oils and seasoning. I'm going to chop up some garlic and um, mix it with olive oil and salt and kind of marinate the potatoes in that. Oh, yeah, so this is the technique, right? You put it in a in a wooden spoon to make sure that you don't go all the way through the potato. Is that yeah, right? So you, you need some sort of, um, I suppose, blocker, a device that will stop your knife sliding all the way through to make a cut all the way through. So you, a handle of a wooden spoon you're not particularly fond of is perfect. And you just look, I'll show you, here you go. I'm taking the potato, um, placing it sort of horizontally against the spoon, and then we just make loads of little cuts. You'll probably hear that. And then you just see that's sort of what you're after. Okay, right, so we're going to leave Dan doing the potatoes. What are we going to do over here, Nick? So, we're about to start constructing the land sea air. So, first off, we're going to put out a little bit of cling film, because we're kind of doing it sushi style, um, but we just want to get it nice and tight. So, So, so what you've got here, you've got some uh, pheasant breasts... Uh, skin still on. They could actually be... I mean, I, I pulled them out of the freezer. be honest, they kind of look more like partridge crowns. This will be a, a situation that anybody who's got a freezer full of game is familiar with, which yeah, is you're not entirely certain what's in the also, packet. Also, when you start, don't write what it is. Well, that say... says to me, five times partridge crown. Part crown. So I reckon we got partridge. They yeah. look more partridge size than pheasant size to me. I mean, to be honest, I've never actually done it with partridge so partridge and rabbit it's a new combination but you can do it with any even like deer deer, rabbit deer pheasant so i think as long as you've got that air element and also um the land element and then with the nori you've got your sea element i think it works so nick's just taking the breasts off the breastbone here um which is Something that I'm sure everybody is familiar with doing. Is there any reason that you store them on the crown? Is that just because it gives you more options rather well, than taking them off the bone when, you, when you're preparing the birds in the first place? Yeah, so I think cooking um, any birds like on the crown, like, we always kind of tend to store them 
obviously because we teach a lot of butchery down here we kind of show them different techniques and but obviously you know if you've got like up to 20 people here on a course you're not going to be eating that many so whatever we've got left we do try to store things on the crown because it just if you're grilling stuff off like over the open half right there yeah. where we do all cooking um it kind of you just get a much better flavor because your bones coming through then we pretty much everything um that's left over bone wise will use the stock um so potentially once you've taken breasts off a crown we've got stuff we can chuck straight in the hot pot right so coming back over to the potato station dan has very finely diced some uh garlic cloves about half a dozen garlic cloves and he's about eight. <laughs> there you go, eight garlic cloves. And then you sprinkled some rock salt over the top. Yeah, a bit of salt and then crush them down into a paste. And then we'll mix that with oil and just chuck that all over the potatoes. So they'll be super garlicky, really salty, and create Sorry, a nice bit of. You've got rosemary. Yes, we're going to hit it up with some herbs, definitely. I'm going to grab some rosemary. And again, like, you know, really nice way just to, you know, really accelerate the flavour and excitement of a, a an ordinary new potato. Fantastic. Mm. I'm very excited about this. The more you talk about it, the more excited I get. That's so, good. right. That's because so, you're hungry. I'm so hungry. I didn't have any breakfast this morning. So, right now, we've got the fez- the partridge breasts are off the bone. And so now we're going to start constructing. Is that right? That is. Uh, so, first of all, we're going to lay down a little roll of or sheet of cling film. Because this way we can actually get kind of uh, like a really nice tight roll on it. That's why, because effectively what we're looking to do is make a sausage. So this gets it allows us to get it really nice and tight. Uh, when we actually cook it, we'll be using a bit of butcher's twine. So we'll unravel it from the cling film. Once we've got a nice tight um, roll on it, tie that up, and then from there um, we'll just grill it off and then just take off. Yeah, so what you're doing here, you're just laying some pancetta over the cling film, and this is going to sort of form the outside layer of our our land, sea, air sausage. Exactly that. And so we want these, each uh, rasher of pancetta to be slightly overlapping, I guess. Exactly that. So we've put them at a kind of like slightly diagonal, so we get a little bit more coverage as we go. But see, see, that's the thing. So this is where we're putting the fat content into the game so and you look at these these are nice fatty slices well i'm going to leave you to that because uh, it looks like you need to concentrate but so um dan's just nipped out to the garden what have you brought back in lovely bit of uh fresh sage and some rosemary and your your beds look amazing oh, <laughs> really <you>. nice. <laughs> there's so much going on there i for some reason am struggling to get my herbs to really kind of flourish like that but anyway very jealous so yeah just putting some the nice thing about you know Hasselbacks you've got these little tiny slits in the potato and you can feed little bits of sage in there oh sort of squish it into the slot yeah very nice yeah just to get the the flavor in there just cut up a sage leaf and just put the odd bit in so very nice well it's all coming together nicely but that thing is, I think there's quite fun about doing this kind of cookie is that you could be nice and like quite anal about the preparation of it. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then, and then you've got the side of the fire cookery. Yeah, this is quite a fancy technique, right? This isn't just your standard whacking a lump of meat on the grill, which is a perfectly acceptable way of doing it. Uh, but this is a little bit fancier. So this would be like, you know, if you've got a few friends coming over and you want to do something that's going to 
give a bit of a wow fact. This I, don't, I don't know if I'd cook this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, no, we're having burgers tonight. Uh, but uh, I think that's the thing is like when, especially when you've got like people on like a course, you kind of want to show them things that they wouldn't normally do at home. So uh, Nick is now just layering the partridge breasts over the top of the pancetta in the opposite direction. Is that just for structure? Um, so mainly for structure. So you want like have a bit of a fatty or the fatter end of the fillet or the breast fillet to one side, and then um, you want to have the thinner end in the middle because that way you're going to get kind of better you get a kind of even amount of meat all the way through that's it and then we're also gonna we'll now go layer in our rabbit so that's just going in on top of the pheasant yeah Um, so then we're gonna so we're laying up like the partridge partridge i apologize Um, it kind of reminds me one of those um sort of five bird roasts or ten bird roasts that you like a turducken yeah, exactly. They're quite fun to do. Are they? I bet, yeah. Have you not done one? I have. I've done one with a, that finished off with a turkey for uh, for Christmas once. But um, they're kind of quite like traditional old English recipes. And I think sometimes we forget, or a lot of people forget what it was like before an electric oven, right? And a lot of these techniques must, you know, they must have come from somewhere, um, the way that people's hearths and stoves were set up. So uh, Nick has just spotted the deliberate mistake, which is... He missed off the uh, nori sheets, so we're gonna just we're just gonna re- reverse, and uh, so we we removed the partridge and rabbit from the pancetta, and we are going to put down what one sheet, two sheets, uh, just the one sheet, just the one sheet of nori. Oh, sorry about that. That's all right. This is live live cooking. Mistakes get made. Right, so the nori's going on. Start again now. But this feels like a, a recipe that will work really well because you can use pretty much whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you've got in the freezer. You can kind of adapt this to whatever happens to be well, this, kicking about. Well, this thing, but we do find like with, like, whenever we're doing kind of courses, stuff like that, we try to kind of keep as seasonal as possible. So we won't, for example, use... Things like pheasant partridge during summer, but for little things like this, of course, because it's in the freezer. Like if you're at home, you wouldn't necessarily go, "Oh, hang on, that's not in season, so I'm not going to use it." But uh, we try to just be as seasonal as possible with everything we use. So very much in the summer, we're using uh, a lot of rabbit, a lot of pigeon. But you know, if you've got it in your freezer, use it. And and does all the game that you use does that come from the estate, or do you have to go elsewhere for it? Absolutely. Every single piece of pheasant, partridge. I mean, all, all of our rabbit tends to come from Glind, like Glind Estate, which is where I live, just kind of over the road. Um, but all of our partridge, pheasant, all come uh, from Furl Estate. Um, so we actually kind of literally, we have over the barn uh, a drive called um, Shepherd's. This is Shepherd's Barn. Um, they basically beat the birds out of the cover crop up there. Uh, we've got eight guns about 20 metres back from our wall garden lined up across there. And it's really good, actually, to have people on a course that have never seen like a sheep before and experienced all of that. Um, we make sure they stay inside the barn and just watch from out of it because you 
occasionally get your old old boy who might go for a low pheasant and it's a little bit like oh, okay and literally you know all the birds the lovely thing about it is that all the birds that they shoot on this drive we then walk out go up to the game cart and go through them and fondle them make sure legs are intact uh, and they go straight in the chiller so that's very low food miles it's more food meters it's, yeah food meters definitely um, so that that's the thing that's that's great about it, and you know, could we we get to know all the beaters and the um, gamekeepers. So Dan, your potatoes have gone on the grill, or I've already put them in. Yeah, so it's one of those things that if I'm planning on cooking, you know, more than just the meat element on my barbecue, I'm always thinking about timings. Um, most veggies are a bit quicker than your than your meats, but potatoes are great because you can actually cook them. And you can even take them off if they're kind of ready. They're going to they're gonna hold really well. You can heat them back up again. So the potatoes have gone in. I reckon they're going to take about 30 minutes. Uh, the grill's really nice and hot. We're cooking with lumpwood charcoal. So around 220 degrees. So are they are they gone directly on the grill or are they in a container of some sort? I'm sure we'll go, we'll go and have a look yeah, in a minute. In, but Indirect in a nice little roasting dish. So indirect, which is where you have the heat to one side, banked to one side, lid down. All that lovely hot air and flavour is circulating, so it's roasting, really. Yeah. Right. Nick has been out to the garden. He, too, has got some sage. So sage is going to feature strongly in uh, today's lunch. So we've got a, a little layer of, uh, of mustard gone on there. Some excitable dogs. And then you're just layering... The final layer, I guess, is some sage leaves. Being very carefully... Yeah, we, we, we've gone for, like, French's mustard. So, I mean, as... Anyone who's like a barbecue fanatic, I mean, using French's mustard in most things. I mean, I'm, I'm more classic. I prefer like a, a Dijon. That um, little bit of extra kick. Yeah, um, even even a bit of uh, English. Right, this is the complicated bit. This is where I might screw it up, but we'll see. So the technique here is to use the cling film to help you fold over the first sort of roll I guess and then you're just with a little bit of it's, swearing it's basically like I'm not swearing that's it so once you've got that off it's just about kind of just like making sushi but with meat well I was going to say it looks like the trickiest bit it's a bit like rolling a cigarette which is getting that first tuck underneath exactly yeah exactly and then once you've got that first layer first layer of pancetta tucked underneath the rest of it kind of does itself well i see so now we're just gonna roll that up like that so it becomes a nice tight sausage so what you've done there is you sort of twizzled the ends to sort yeah, of tighten up the cling film we grill it we're gonna tie it up with a bit of string gotcha right so what nick's doing now he's just using a bit of uh butcher's twine to bind the whole uh sea Sky land, have I got that the right way around? Land, sky, sea. Land, sea, air. Land, sea, air. Got there in the end. Um, uh, sausage together. And that just prevents it from collapsing during the cook, I guess. Yes, yeah, so we just kind of used the cling film more of a as a kind of sushi rolling mat. Um, now, I mean, obviously, you don't want to cook it with cling film on. So we're just tying it up. We've unraveled it once we've got it nice and tight. And then we're just going to cover it over with a few bits of butcher's twine, and then it's going to go straight on the grill. Is so it going direct heat for this, or...? Um, so what we'll probably do is we'll do indirect for a bit. So we're going to have our coals on one side, um, and we're just going to allow it 
a bit of time to kind of cook through. Because bear in mind, we've got a lot of a kind of uncooked meat in there. So we're just going to allow that to like gently cook through. And then we'll finish it off on direct. Food. That makes sense. Um, and we're using the lovely ash charcoal we got today uh, from my very good friend who works here. Uh, from Whit the Flame. Um, it's very kind of artisan charcoal. So it's particular stuff. But we kind of, we dabble. We use a bit of Weber. Use a bit of this. Use a bit of that. We haven't really talked about fuel, um, but very quickly, I mean, what would the, the one piece of advice you'd give people about what charcoal to buy? Does it make a difference? Massively. Don't buy stuff from, like, if you go to a petrol station, it'd be full of, like... Fillers and, and binders, and it's a grey area as well, because often ingredients lists don't need to be stated on charcoal, so you could be buying something that's mineral coal based or you could be buying something that's wood based and you're not always sure so yeah it's but an ingredient right it's an ingredient in the, in exactly the and it's, it's got a massive part to it but it's like buy whatever you can a afford and what's most local to you makes sense and what about lump wood versus briquettes or oh. any particular special uses for those or well generally i mean um if you're using high quality charcoal briquettes so pure charcoal they they because of their sort of compressed nature, they'll last for a long time. Um, lump, well, lumpwood charcoal tends to burn out a little quicker. But um, yeah, so generally speaking, from a, with, um, when we're roasting, I use briquettes and um, grilling lumpwood charcoal. Right, so are we ready to head out to the grill then? As you can probably hear, we've come outside to the grill where everything is cooking. This is just on a standard Weber kettle barbecue. Let's see if we can get a little sound of that sizzle. So what Nick's done is he's just popped the, uh, the, the sausage that we've just made, for want of a better term, uh, onto one side of the grill which is away from where the heat source is so the brick the, the, the charcoal is piled up on the left hand side from where i'm looking at it and the uh, sausage and the spuds are on the other side of the grill we've got the lid on and the air holes fully open and there's plenty of heat coming off there i'm standing about a, a yard away and i can feel it there we're in the sunshine and now it's just a question of waiting isn't it dan it is yeah it's a really nice um idea i've not seen I've not seen game cook quite like this before, but it's definitely uh, something I want to try at home. And I think you know, if you've got if you've got any kind of barbecue, you can recreate these kind of dishes with whatever kind of grill you have, be it a gas grill, a charcoal barbecue, or an electric grill, or whatever you have. So um, yeah, I think the message is definitely use your game and use it on the grill. Yeah, and so um, I mean, this is the hardest bit of any barbecue, which is waiting. So we are just going to uh, I think we'll just enjoy the sunshine while this cooks. Right, we're having a look. Oh wow, that's really coloured up quite quickly, hasn't it? Yeah. See, that's the thing, the beauty of indirect is that you can kind of use like these, these like a Weber kettle as, as an oven. So you kind of get that smoky flavour into it. And you're also kind of, it's not like searing off, which will do. And you can see that pancetta's getting pretty good. I might have to get the temp pen out. Check it out. See where we're at. But I reckon what we're looking for is 
65 on that. And we could pull off at 60 <coughs> and then we'll wrap it, rest it. Sounds good. I'm excited. Bit of edge. Oh, what have we got going on there? A bit of asparagus. A bit of asparagus. Uh, bit of olive oil. Bit of lovely molten salt. And then um, uh, give it a squeeze of lemon at the end. And that's just in a in a metal sieve, and you plonk that straight on the grate. Yeah. So that's that's thing. So cooking with like like sieves, it's great because you get that direct smoky flavour coming through. Like with a saucepan, you don't get that. Yeah. If you, you put it on a barbecue, whereas with a sieve. You get all of that coming through. Um, uh, I did see a cool reel the other day where they did like, like did like a like egg in it, like scrambled egg or something, and they got this so hot that you could just and it didn't it run through. No That's a very clever and idea. They, but then they used chopsticks to like kind of oh, wow. swirl it round like that, and it just I was just like, there's so much wank there. That looks amazing. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. But it just goes to show that the, the possibilities with fire cooking are pretty much infinite if you've got a bit of imagination and you're prepared to try things. Well, that's the thing, and it's like it's really, I think, again. it's really important to like play around with these things and go, you know what, actually, yeah, you're gonna have like, you only, I think you only get success from failure. If you try Very something true. and it doesn't work, you're like, okay, well, how can I make that better or make it work? Um, so it's it's like really good fun to play around with and I mean you know with fire it is that one of those things that you kind of there's infinite possibilities it can go from like zero to a hundred and it's like what point do you hit it and it's almost a bit like so I make slow gin every year and people often ask me for my recipe and I have to tell them I don't really know what it is because it's never the same twice it's sort of vaguely it's sort of done by eye and some yeah. years it comes out great and some years it's not so good and it's never the same <laughs> well i couldn't even if i wanted to yeah. um but it's it's the same right your fire is never going to be exactly the same your meat's always going to be different so you're always going to end up with slightly different results and you might never not quite know what it was you did right or wrong that made but all the difference i think i'm saying with more long-term stuff like when we do a lot of pickling and fermentation so whatever thing I do down here, in that terms, I'm like, I write down how I've done it, and then if it turns out well, I'm like, cool, follow that recipe again. If it doesn't work out, then you go, okay, that one didn't work. But that's, that's the nature of experimentation. I'm going, okay, well, this might work, that might not. Um, but, you know, if you don't push forward, you're never gonna get anywhere. Very true, well, it smells absolutely incredible. Right, so this is the moment. We've got a bit of tin foil. So we're going to take this off. I don't think, actually. There you go. Damn, damn with the claws. That's licking. That, that we actually haven't hit that with any direct heat. So we're just going to put that in some tin foil. Rest it for about five minutes. We're hitting about sixty now on that. So just leave that. Everything else looking pretty fruity. Um, smash some lemon juice on that as well. That's on the asparagus, yeah? On, on the asparagus. Look at that. These two are just like... They know something good's happening. I could, I could smell what you're cooking. I think Lombardou should be pretty hot. 
Okay, so this is the, the bit that's intrigued me because I've never seen something like this before. So all the while that the, the food has been on the grate, there's been, well, I don't quite know how to describe it. It's a sort of a hollow cone. It basically, the best way of describing it is it looks like a candle snuffer. That's a very good way of describing it. So it's a hollow cone made of iron, yeah. steel, but on a long stick, down. upside down, on a long stick, and you've had that directly in the coals, heating it up. So what's the plan with this? The idea is you get it really red hot. So obviously with things like game, you don't get too much fat content. So the idea with that is we're gonna add in, so we've got some lovely beef suet. We're gonna stick into that and it will just, cause that thing is so hot, it's liquidized and just drip liquid fat over it so we're basically going to baste the meat in meat fat, in, in meat fat. Uh, that sounds amazing <laughs> okay. right we've been resting the, the sausage for five ten minutes something like that wrapped in cling film and it's just come up to temperature which is 65 degrees in the middle what did I say? Cling film. <laughs> I meant tinfoil. <laughs> but it's holding its shape really well now because all the proteins kind of set when you cook it. So it's a perfect sausage. It's the last one to slice it up. What are we looking for here? Are we looking for thick slices or? Go for, I mean, it's just three of us. Fat slices. So then onto a lovely charred wood presentation board we've got the uh, sliced asparagus which has been grilled uh, it's got a bit of lemon juice over the top bit of salt bit of olive oil dan has sliced our our sausage so the final well two final bits is the uh the, the potatoes which i think are just about to come off Dan doing a little chef's taste there <laughs> here comes spuds this is going to be the drizzling with the sort of flash melted beef fat. So here comes Nick with his torture implement. He's got a big lump of beef fat it's going straight in the top. And That is an extremely cool technique. And it's incredible how quickly that melts. I mean, that shows you how hot the, the thing is. Wow. Right, here we go. This is the moment of truth. You dropped a bit. <laughs> it's quite hard to know. I think we probably go for the go for the game first, don't we, Dan? I reckon, yeah. 100%. Get in there. So you've got rabbit. Rabbit, got nori, pheasant. Rabbit. No, 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 no partridge. partridge. Pancetta. And a bit of nori, bit of mustard, bit of sage. Um, finished off with the flambadou. So a load of beef fat on it. I have to say that is really, really good. The sage is so nice with game, I think. And the nori doesn't sort of stick out as being out of place. Do you know what I mean? It kind yeah. of does go with the flavour really well. And I've got to get a bit of this pickled samphire as well, which is... It kind of adds like a, a little hint of umami and... I suppose a bit of saltiness to it, but that's the sea element. Um, I mean, we toyed with like going, should we put fish in it as well? But 
I mean, that's taking it to another surf and lurf, uh, sur- <coughs> surf and lurf, surf and turf, like parallel, if you like. Going, okay, we could hmm. do that. With the sandfire, is, it just completely changes it. That's so good. Well, I think so. Those are our sea elements. Mm. Yeah. Um, but those, yeah, those pheasants were literally shot overhead from where we're sat. And it's, it's glorious to hear the shot raining down on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm now going to have a go on one of Dan's Hasselback potatoes. Oh, so much garlic. <laughs> I like the way you've got the two dogs. They're just waiting They're for me waiting to drop some. Kind of, yeah. can smell something. They're just like doggy hoovers. Right, so I don't think everybody needs to listen to us eating the whole lot. So I think what I'm going to say while I wait for my potato to cool down is, um, Nick, Dan, thank you ever so much. Dan, thank you for setting up. Nick, thank you for sharing your space and your expertise with us. It's been so, so interesting. Um, I wish, we, I wish I, we could do this every time, to be honest with you. Um, so thank you so much. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having both of you down here and obviously Dan, who I've met many years ago, um, uh, like kind of hearing all the stuff about Weber and how they use them and the things you can do with them that I'm not necessarily familiar with because I'm more of a feral fire cooking person. Whereas, you know, if you're talking experts, <coughs> Dan's definitely there. Well, I think it's been a really great blend of, of feral and, and professional. I think it's great. Um, so I'm going to leave everybody there. I'm going to say thank you ever so much to everyone for listening. Uh, we will be back in uh, a couple of weeks' time with another episode. It will be another special episode, but I'm not going to tell you any more than that. Uh, but I will be on location somewhere, and Chris will, will be with me next time. But until then, thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Thank you, George. Thanks, George. Bye. I'm going to get stuck in now. <laughs>